Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Williams is an iconic name in Formula 1 and there's no question its peak came during the V10 era. From 1992 to 1997, the T won four drivers' titles and five constructors' crowns, yet only one of the drivers that won a championship for Frank Williams during that spell managed to stay on to carry the number one with the team for the following season. And I won't even name check him at this point. Beyond the champions, there were several other memorable drivers for Williams who starred in Renault or BMW-powered machinery. So for our now regular top 10 debate in Series 9, we are arguing over the top 10 Williams drivers of the V10 era. And joining me, Glenn Freeman, to do just that, we have our usual panel for these episodes, Ed Straw, Matt Beer and Ben Anderson. A top 10 episode means there's no traditional opening question, of course, so let's show some love to some of the drivers who just missed out on making the cut. Ed, you included two drivers who didn't make it overall, Thierry Bootsen and Heinz Hald Frentzen. Are you particularly sad to hear that either of those didn't make it in? I'm not completely surprised Frentzen didn't. He got in simply because he won a race. I'm a, I'm a bit disappointed for Bootsen because although he wasn't a very Williams driver, he did have some success and some pretty good wins in that difficult two seasons. So yeah, well, I, I think Bootsen merits being in there. I think he's an overlooked driver in general. I'm not saying he should be top three, but yeah, I, I, for me, he it was never really in doubt he was in the top 10. So the rest of you are all wrong. Well, well, well don't, don't drag me into this. He was in mine as well. It's the other two that we have to blame. Matt and Ben are wrong. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> I'm going to say that a lot. No, no, we're not. No, we're not. Right, uh, Ben, anyway, uh, Mark Webber was the only driver you picked who didn't make it in. Is there any sense of injustice there? Oh, I'm not too sad about it. Like Someone had to be 10th, and I felt like Bootson was too tuggy compared to Patracy. Patracy got smashed by Mansell. Patracy was a long time in my top 10, and I just thought, nah, for 92, can't be in there. And Webber, obviously, almost won the championship later in his career, very fast. And I was a bit of a, at this point, I was a bit of a fanboy from the Jaguar days. So he's just a kind of nominal top 10 for me. Not too sad that he didn't make the cut. Can I throw a quick stats blast in? Bootson qualified ahead of Patrese more. He completed more racing laps ahead of Patrese. And he finished ahead of him more. So on all those metrics, he was ahead. Yeah, they didn't keep him on though, did they? They stuck with Patrese though, didn't they? To me, they're like much of a muchness and not good enough overall. 
Yeah, the reason Bootson got in for me, I'll admit, um, <laughs> I found one to eight quite easy to put together. And then I, it was, what, what am I going to do with positions nine and ten? And Bootson won three races for the team. Uh, and I felt like, you know, I'm not sure one win. So like a Frentzen situation, one win, especially in a very good car, that's not enough to get you in. But if you win three, regardless of the circumstances, you, you, you don't win three races by accident. Anyway, Matt... I have to change the question for you because you were the only one of us who picked the exact 10 drivers who we're going to be talking about today. Oh, phew. Was there anyone you felt bad about leaving out? Uh, actually, Bootson was oh, the only one. And oh, it's again because man. of the, the three wins and being quite close to someone I put quite high up. So I didn't realise this was the Bootson fan club. When did this happen? When, well, when you were saying this was going to be about who didn't get in, I was thinking, what a travesty it would be if any of my 10 didn't get in, because I feel so passionately about all of them. So Can I, I'm, can I'm I also right. ask, why did Frentzen make Ed's top 10? That is ludicrous. Because <laughs> that's the most Ed thing that could happen in this list, isn't it? It's just There's 10 drivers, 10 drivers won races. Oh. He won he the Grand Prix. Dreadful. That's very he was dreadful. He was isn't it? He also... Uh, I've got a lot of stats in this, but there is a concept I'll come back to, which is Williamsiness. And although Frentzen wasn't the most Williamsy driver, he does tick <laughs> one very important box of Williamsiness in my book. So uh, that's why he, he got in ahead of others. Well, we'll get into that more. But there's, oh. I mean, he basically the fact spoiler that alert as, the fact that he was signed as the next big thing, and then in about five minutes they decided he wasn't good enough, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we're gradually looking to the next big thing. That's a very Williams driver experience. To be honest, with my methodology that I will um, explain later so you can all lambast me for it, Frentzen could easily have got in on, on that. So I, I, I see where, where Ed is coming from with Williams in this, but he also was rubbish. Ultimately, uh, Frentzen was signed as the next big thing. Then he came up against greatness in the other car. <laughs> and uh, was found out immediately. Right, before we go any further, uh, in the Bring Back V10s community, which you can find on X, and there's a link to it in the description of this episode... Um, once it was announced that we were recording this episode, Stuart Coulter in that community uh, replied saying, so this is Stuart's prediction. And as you listen along, um, see see how accurate Stuart is. He says, uh, we can all guess who your number one is, Glenn, thinking emoji. Ben will put Damon Hill number one. Ed will use super times to compile his top 10. Ed's already <laughs> made several mentions of data, so that one might be right. Uh, and Mansell will probably end up fourth or fifth in a combined ranking because Matt will refuse to acknowledge the existence of our Nige and leave him out entirely. <laughs> so let's see if any of those things happen. I think the Ed one is a sure thing. We'll see if everybody else plays to type here. Uh, right, before we crack on, I just want to remind you about the special offer we have at the moment where you can get your first month free if you sign up to the Race Members Club. This is a limited time offer. So by the time you hear this in our main feed, you'll have just under a week to take advantage of the opportunity as the deal is only running until the 5th of March 2024. So if you're a fan of this show, you are not going to want to miss out. Once you join, you'll get access to all sorts of bonus content from the race and bring back V10s, including our entire back catalogue of additional bonus episodes that we've already done. You'll also get the Alex Zanardi book special that Matt and I are doing after this series. Uh, there'll be extra Ask Us Anything episodes exclusively for members. But most importantly, over the coming weeks after Series 9 has finished, you'll get to come with the four of us who are here today on a race-by-race -race journey 
back through a classic V10 era season where we'll do a mini episode on each race. And in fact, because this is the last episode while this uh, offer is still running, let's announce it right now. Last week, I gave you a clue that it was a season that starts in Australia, in Melbourne. It's 1997 that we're doing. And before you think that is because I've chosen it because it's the year Jacques Villeneuve won the championship. The reason is that when we did a best seasons, Ben's shaking his head. When we did a best season World Cup for the V10 era, which I think was in our community, 1997 won. So it's the the voice of our community. The voices of our community have spoken. 97 is the best season. So that's the season we should do. I might not let Ben speak here. Uh, Matt, uh, I'm, I'm going on safer ground with you. How do you feel about a race by race journey through 1997 for our members? Delighted. I love it. I think I've claimed in one of these other debate episodes that it's the greatest F1 season of all time. That's the sort of bombastic nonsense I would come out with. But of all the F1 seasons I've followed as a fan or a journalist, I don't think any had quite the same element of, I don't know what is going to happen in the next race. And I love that about that. I'm going to thank Bridgestone for that mostly because that was one of the biggest upset ingredients in that season. You had a great title fight between two proper, proper people who ended and it ended in a collision even better. But it wasn't just all about them. There was so much more going on. I, I cannot wait to, to do this. But saying all that, it's just Glenn Freeman confirmation bias, this, isn't it? Oh, some people on a car community voted for it. So we're going for the Jacques Villeneuve season. It's just, it was always going to be this way. There'd always be some justification. It's all well and good you coming with your facts about how good the season was, Matt. But I don't think we need to let Glenn get away with this. Oh, suddenly Ed is anti-facts. Yeah, oh yeah. But also, Ed, we're going to spend a lot of this this mini-series talking about Villeneuve limping his way to a title he should have won easily. Yeah, making hard work of it, yeah. You know, this isn't, 90, this isn't 96 where Villeneuve was actually good. It's going to backfire, isn't it? It's well, going to actually expose was, Glenn for the charlatan he is. Well, this, this was part of my defence was going to be. Obviously, if I was if, if if I decided it was completely up to me, would I put myself at the mercy of you three idiots to give you an opportunity to just lambast <laughs> Villeneuve for seventeen mini episodes? Uh, ben, obviously, are, are you going to be able to? Are you going to be able to handle this? Are you going to be able to handle Damon Hill? barely qualifying in Australia, then breaking down. Are you going to be able to handle Hungary 97? Yeah, Hungary 97 is fine. That kind of re- that kind of rescues his reputation in everybody's eyes. Uh, no, I think I voted 97 the best title fight in our ranking of those. So I'm not really against this in principle. I'm against feel nerve, I suppose, but not 97. And obviously F197 is like iconic from my childhood. Excellent so name drop. I can't I can't I cannot really begrudge us going through that season piece by piece because it was great. Yeah, exactly. And for, I know most people uh take the Villeneuve stuff in good humor. For those of you who get a bit tired of it, don't worry. It's not just going to be 17 episodes about how great he was. These three won't allow that. But the, the idea is we'll pick a bunch of things that happened up and down the grid and we'll just have a very short, sharp chat. It'll be different to the, the main Bring Back V10s episodes. We won't do all the news stuff. I, I won't be doing any research. These three can do research if they want. I'm just going to remind myself quickly of what happened, watch a bit of the season review and then crack on, uh, crack on with it. Anyway, let's crack on with this episode. Those episodes will only be available to members, so... I would advise you to take up the offer while it's still running to get your first month free and then you'll be all set to pick up the 97 
It's not quite a watch along. It's kind of a live along. You could come back with us on the journey through <laughs> 1997. And one last plug. Uh, if you haven't checked out our merch range yet, then head to shop.the-race.com to check out Bring Back V10's branded hoodies, T-shirts, Baby Grows, uh, and much more, including our 2024 calendar, which the, uh, the day before we recorded this, I, I was speaking to Ollie, who helped me design that calendar, and he said they're still selling in the middle of February. So well done to everyone who's still getting them. Uh, they're available in standard wall hanging form or a smaller desk version, which is what I have on my desk. If we sell enough of them, we'll do another one next year. So uh, if, if you want to keep buying them, uh, that would really help us out. But let's go on with it now. Our top 10 Williams drivers of the V10 era. In 10th place, we have David Coulthard, who spent a season and a bit at Williams, initially stepping up from test driver to replace Ayrton Senna in 1994, briefly having to share that seat with Nigel Mansell that year, before getting the nod to race full-time in 1995, winning a race in Portugal that year, then departing for McLaren, where, as we've talked about on the show before, he admits he moved for money. DC made it into all of our top 10s, which isn't the case for every driver on this list. In fact, he's one of only six that we all included. Ed and I had him placed highest at eighth. Ben had him ninth and Matt put him 10th. So, Ed, what was it about DC's contribution to Williams that got him so comfortably into your top 10? Well, he made a good impact, didn't he? Won a Grand Prix, got five pole positions, gave Damon Hill a hard time on occasions in, in 1995, particularly at the back end of the season. He had a few hilarious moments, which are very memorable. Monza, the spin on the formation lap, the pit wall moments at Adelaide. So they're, they're good. I, I think the only thing really that counts against Coulthard is he's not a very Williamsy driver. And to get to this idea of Williamsiness, it's all about being you know, a bit of a pain in the arse, an extreme character, ideally recruited and dropped in slightly odd circumstances. But I would say that DC's not that Williamsy, partly because he's at the other end of the scale. He's quite McLaren-y, which is something that we can apply to another driver who may or may not crop up later on in this. So I Nigel think... Mansell is very McLaren-y, you're right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So McLaren-y. But yeah, I think uh, I, I think DC qualifies just because he's a story driver and the circumstances of him coming in as well mean he's, he's there for important moments in Williams. So he, he's a significant player in the history of Williams, which over and above the statistics is also part of this top 10 Williams drivers. So for me, it was never in doubt he'd be, he'd be in the list and yeah it, it was it was unusual that he was one of the few that actually left on his own terms if you like as he signed for McLaren. Matt how how vulnerable was Coulthard here did he sneak in or was he always kind of a lock for you he just had to be at the bottom? Oh he was he was a lock actually it's more I wish he'd, he'd made a bit more of the chance like I said the hilarious moments the pit lane crash the formation lap spins even some of the less like massive ones like spinning off in Canada in 95 or shunting in Hungary in 94. There were quite a few squandered moments from Coulthard. And, and against that, he was giving Hill a hard time pretty quickly in 94, sort of towards the tail end of his pre-Mansell stint. He, there were times when either he'd been delayed and was a lap down, was behind Hill, or was having to have you held back with team orders. And he was a rookie at that point, coming up against a driver really established at Williams, by, by then at least. Um, and end of 95, he was super fast when he wasn't doing something ludicrous. And there's there's an alternative history where he stays on at Williams and he could genuinely be a double world champion because of 96 and 97 and how good those cars were. Now, Coulthard as a double world champion is not indicative of Coulthard's F1 level. It would have been a bit of a, a massive um, step up for, for him. But uh, would, it be, would it have been offensive? 
maybe probably not offensive. Worst people have won titles, but you know he was great. Um, he just wasn't really there long enough to play. A, I know he was there for significant moments, like Ed says, but there wasn't enough time overall. There wasn't enough time where he was actually delivering on what he was capable of. He's a he's a nice untold Williams story or unrealized Williams story. Many thoughts, Ben. Uh, yeah, nothing to really disagree with here. I think this is all quite similar. And Coulthard for me is in that group of drivers who are kind of very good number twos, maybe one and a half, maybe could have snuck a title in the right circumstances like Matt mentioned. So he was always going to be in the top 10, but it's hard to argue he could be much higher than ninth or 10th, really. He was fast, but as has been explained, very error prone at this stage in his career, especially. Well, there'll be more disagreement as we go on, I can promise you. Ninth on the list, uh, we have Jensen Button, who only raced for Williams for one season, then famously tried to go back there for 2005, which was blocked by BAR. Then he had to buy his way out of a commitment to go there for 2006 when he realised they were losing their works BMW engines. Williams, of course, gave Jensen his big break as a surprise rookie hire in 2000. We almost got into that in our Zanardi 99 episode. While he impressed with his performances, he never took a win or even a podium for the team before being shipped off to Benetton to make way for Juan Pablo Montoya. Ed didn't put Button in his list. Uh, I had him 10th, Ben had him 7th, <laughs> and Matt put him up in 6th. Matt, why did Button rank so highly for you? I'm stunned Ed didn't put him in, especially on Williams in this. Was he just not enough of an arsehole at that point in his career, possibly? Was that where he falls down? Actually, Ed, it's my turn. So uh, having invited you in, I'm going to just hog it instead. Yeah, don't give Ed more yeah. opportunities to speak. Yeah. <laughs> Outrageous. I have many important things to say. So, okay, Ed's got his definition of Williams in this. I kind of went, I, I had the choice between going, let's look at every single race of the V10 era and give every Williams driver in it a mark out of five for their performances relative to the car. Could have done that. Decided, no, I'm just going to go on vibes. And Williams is a team that people actually believed in because it did did some self-destructive things, but it always did it with a real kind of pure racing ideology. And the idea of signing button as a kid straight out of f3 just his third year in car racing was a very williams thing to do and for them to go so well for so much of the season and for williams to then end up losing him and making several failed attempts to get him back is a very very williams thing to happen so on pure williams vibes he scores very highly but also as much as i sort of slightly resented because I, I was very anti-patriotic at that point in my life i was 19 as much as i slightly resented button being so good some of his performances that season in the wet, some of the qualifying performances at the very toughest circuits were absolutely epic. And uh, he he eventually ended up being a world champion and it, and it, having gone through a lot of years where it looked like it wouldn't happen, in 2000, it looked certain so quickly that this kid was going to be a world champion at some point because of the, the raw talent he clearly had. And we wouldn't have got to see that for a couple of years if it hadn't been Williams going, yeah, we're, we're going to take this punt. But okay, by the time Williams got rid of Zanardi, there weren't many obvious options left, but this was still there were still more obvious things that could have done than this. So yeah, massive Williams vibes and impressive when he got there. Ed, justify yourself. Yeah, it just came down to does Frentzen nip in because he got a win and a oh, technical boo. second in the championship or oh. does Button go in? I think that the Button Willy Wonty return thing added a good thing to his case. I think Button was probably my P11 on this. So yeah, I think... Still too low. Because Frentzen has that uh, that 
unpleasant, well, the, the sort of hangdogness story of it, that he was the next big thing and then just decided to be rubbish almost instantly, I, I think, just nips him in on That's a reason not to include no, him, though, surely. It's the, it's, that's part of the Williams experience. They love You just slagged Heinz old Frentzen off as a reason for including you in your top ten. But, you know, Williams, Williams absolutely love... Uh, drivers until they sign them and then they like to uh, <laughs> utterly hate them and that's uh, that's kind of what Frenson did but yeah I, I, I don't strenuously dislike Button being there I just think that because that wasn't a great year for Williams he made a good impression but just didn't quite have the, the numbers to back it up so you, it's a coin toss really is about what you want to base it on from a vibes perspective as Matt puts it yeah I can see why you would put Button in ahead of say a Frenson well also a talent perspective no that, that's for me that's what <laughs> lifts him up the list like he was just a better driver than Frentzen, objectively. And Matt outlined very well the case, the fact that he was so inexperienced, chucked in at the deep end, but made a massive impression on everyone and then went on to have a stellar career. Maybe not the absolute elite, but close. I think, you know, he, he belongs well up the list, both on vibes and ability. Yeah, so all the, all the things he did not in a Williams well. don't count. Outside of the realms of uh, of this. Well, this is this is the beauty of people having different ways that they put their top tens together, uh, and there will be more examples of that to come. Uh, number eight in the list uh, is Ricardo Patrese, who spent five years at Williams from 1988 to 92, winning four races, and of course finishing second in the championship to Nigel Mansell in his final year. Ed and I had Patrese seventh in our list. Wow. Matt had him up in fifth, uh, which we'll come back to in a moment. And Patrese was one uh, didn't make it into Ben's top ten. So no. Ben, this time you're the outlier who didn't include the driver <laughs> we're talking about. So you can explain yourself. Yeah, I, mean, I think I said before that he was he was hanging around the bottom of my top ten for a long time, and then I just thought it's just not a good enough driver on pure ability like okay gave Mansell a bit of trouble in the start of 91 and I'm quite impressed by that but just for 92 like how far off he was in that car he just he was smashed he looked so ordinary and I just that alone was enough for me I just I just couldn't I felt like if you put him up against anyone else in in my top 10 they would beat him over a season and therefore he just couldn't he couldn't sneak in I think for Williamsiness and longevity, you could make a sort of token case for him, but certainly not like fifth or seventh or whatever you lunatics have done. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we should say, obviously, I, I put in there, uh, he finished second in the championship. Yeah, only great. just, only just <laughs> in front of Schumacher and Senna in, in inferior machinery. But Matt, we've got to come to you next. Fifth place i don't want to give away some of the names that uh Patrese is above in your list because there are some that have have ended up higher up overall which i'm sure you're shocked about so how on earth does Patrese end up fifth i would say this is my obviously my most contentious pick in the top 10 and one i wavered over before going no I, it was my gut we'll be the judge of that we'll be the judge of your did most you waver pick <laughs> i genuinely wavered i nearly started to use some statistics instead i was like no stick, no. To, stick to your guns <laughs> This was your gut feeling. It's, it's the most important thing. Um, right. He gets... Longevity slightly helps. The people I put him ahead who just weren't at Williams long enough to make as big a contribution I felt to the story. But also, I I really like the Patrese story arc. And I, I've got a lot of admiration for 
there's two, there's two elements to it. One is the amount of donkey work he did to help create the car that Mansell then used to such devastating effect in 92. You know, Petrezzi was putting in the legwork to make that car happen. A lot of the contemporary accounts of his contribution to the development of it are absolutely glowing. And so I, I did give it... That's not very... But he couldn't drive it. <laughs> but if we're going for... St- I, I, I went on kind of storyline more than anything else. And he is a key architect of what ends up being a re- one of Williams' biggest storylines of this period, the, the, the way it dominated in that era. Okay, he's not exactly Adrian Newey doing the aero or the person like programming the actual suspension, but he's a core part of what made that car happen. Also, again, pure storyline vibes, but you know, Petrezzi comes into F1 10-plus years earlier, really quick, but gets witch-hunted and hated by everyone and then screws up all his big chances, like Brabham ends up in uh, some rough teams for a while his career's going absolutely nowhere he ends up William ends up at Williams pretty much by default gets overshadowed by Mansell in 88 and then he kind of pulls it back and reading again contemporary accounts and like the auto course at the time and that sort of thing how much respect Petrezzi earned for the performance he was he was putting in at Williams across 89 90 and then especially 91 where it takes Mansell ages to outqualify him when, when Mansell comes back to Williams there's a lot of he's the least Williams driver character wise on this list in some ways but I just have a massive soft spot for how he managed to restore his reputation in the in a team like Williams, where you wouldn't expect this character to go well, while helping create a car that dominated F1 and putting in some really strong individual performances as well. So, yeah, I just thought I, it was, a, you know, I was sort of 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. I was just getting into F1. Most of this is based on the research I did when I went F1 crazy in the 90s and bought every book and every video I could. And it really embedded me, a kind of in, in me at that point, a lovely story for Tracy going from hated teenage, not teenage, hated young driver lunatic to respected, impressive elder statesman. And he did that at Williams, and I love it. So no no shame. Oh, I've just got to dry my eye, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got no feelings. Fifth! <laughs> my God. Fifth on romance. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. I, I stand by No, that. But, but I think, I think to, to supplement what Matt was saying... Patrese's unique amongst these drivers in that he is the only driver who managed to become part of the furniture at Williams who didn't then lose that status. Damon Hill was part of the furniture at one stage and then he became something else. But Patrese, he was just there, wasn't he? They'd have kept him for 93, but because they dithered for so long, he just signed for Benetton a week before. He even tried to get out of the Benetton contract to stay. They wanted him to come back to test in 94 to help with the passive car. Frank Williams was looking him very seriously to replace... Uh, to take the centre seats when Patrese said actually no they let him test the 96 car as well exactly. I think it was just for a laugh so he is forever <laughs> he is forever Williams and he's the only one who things didn't just go terribly badly for so I think that makes him unique that that it's it's a quality of Williamsiness that only he achieves yeah. and I think it's a bit unfair to judge him by 92 because yes he dreadfully underachieved in that car no question whatsoever there were specific reasons for that and he deserves to be judged not purely by it wasn't his good worst enough. season he didn't get that was he didn't get on with the active ride car he struggled a bit in the fast corners with the strength it, it, he wasn't able to use what he felt was his big advantage over Mansell which was his traction sensitivity because the car had traction control so his exit of slow corner advantage was gone so I think Petrezzi yeah uh, he's he's a, a a Williams linchpin I couldn't put him super high up because ultimately he didn't have the success but yeah he, he holds a unique place in that Williams history 
Thank you, Ed. I have to say, when, when it was revealed that other people put him as high as seventh, I was relieved because I knew as I was doing this ranking that it was such an outlying mad <laughs> idea to put him fifth that I thought I might be the only person putting him in the top ten. So I'm relieved that you've made me feel like less of a lunatic. Yeah, it's Ben who's wrong this time. <sighs> yeah, it was, the, it was the longevity argument and the yeah, just how important he was to the, the kind of early build-up of, of Williams. They, they did need somebody uh, to be able to kind of rally that team around early on so you can play an important role even if then when they finally produce the mega car uh you massively underperform this sounds like the participation award <laughs> thanks thanks for playing right, guys ben, now ben ben's got a massive <laughs> grin on his face and he's being very judgy i the other two don't know what your top 10 is i do i can see it on my screen believe me there are some very judgy questions coming your <laughs> way later in this episode it, it's all right it's just it, we know Ben doesn't value things like fitting in, being a good team player, etc., etc., etc. These are all these are all things he doesn't he doesn't hold in high regard. So that's that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's okay. I'm fine with that. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Let's move on to number seven then, which is Ralph Schumacher. Ralph took six wins for Williams, including the first of the BMW era in 2001. That was at Imola. I was there on the banks at Tosa. Uh, and he made it into all of our top tens, but in a different position each time. Ben had him eighth. Matt had him seventh. I had him sixth. And Ed put Ralph fifth. So a nice kind of staircase progression there we as we moved up the order uh, so ed we'll start with you uh, as you have given ralph the highest ranking why did he place so highly for you and i am going to make a little um revelation here for later in the episode you were the only one of us to put him above Juan pablo montoya so you might want to start with that <laughs> matt's pulled a brilliant f- so's ben the faces are excellent <laughs> 
The, the thing is with Ralph Schumacher is when I actually think about him and scrutinise him as a driver, I'm always consistently surprised by how good I think he is. He wasn't a perfect driver by any stretch of the imagination, but when he was at one with the car, he could be very quick, quicker than Montoya. If you look at his statistics compared to Montoya, although right at the end, Montoya perhaps got on top of him a bit more. That was at a point where Ralph had battered himself a few times in some, uh, uh, at least once in a, in a William Shannon. Anyway, but I I. I think that I liked Montoya more at the time he was more the the sort of hero legend but I actually think Ralph is the one who was capable of just the almost the better feats of driving in pure driving sense Montoya racing yeah probably better than Ralph I had them very close to I think I had them one place apart in my ranking so they're close but for me Ralph actually is a very very Williams driver he had that brilliant 99 season in particular the first year there didn't win a race could have won at the Nürburgring but all through, he kind of defied almost those expectations. And his main crime, of course, is not being Michael Schumacher, but not many people are Michael Schumacher. So I think Ralph was really Williams. He was there for a long time, longest serving in the Bring Back V10 Zero in 94 race starts. Perhaps should have won a few more than, than six races, but he was a good, quick driver. And surprisingly, he fitted in actually pretty well at Williams so I think he's quite a Williamsy driver as well it's just he did he what he just wasn't as fun as Montoya let's put it that way certainly not to uh to to the British audience but I, I think none of that means that he should be devalued as a driver he he was a crucial Williams driver in this period uh Ben and uh Matt you can kind of just who, who first come first served whoever wants to tear that argument down Ed, <laughs> you said his biggest crime was not being Michael Schumacher. His biggest crime was actually not being Montoya. <laughs> but and also, well, okay, I would put Ralph number one in a top ten ranking for 1999. Brilliant, he was excellent in that, that car. Abs- absolutely brilliant. Some of his wins, absolutely brilliant. What about the rest of the time? Either just invisibly nowhere, failing to overtake his brother when he should or could have done. Way less interest in the Montoya and outshone way too easily at some. It, in, in some significant circumstances by a 20-year-old rookie button in 2000. There's just so much that's just like, about Ralph Williamston, even though it was long. And the the high points were so impressive. It's just like, do that like 20% more often and you're probably three places higher up the list because, it's okay, his peaks were brilliant. And also, like, when you're being embarrassed by Montoya, don't be so churlish about it. Yeah, he was he was only really better than Montoya the first season, wasn't he? 01, after that, Montoya is on top of him really and Montoya is just faster faster than Ralph more exciting than Ralph many more pole positions than him probably should have had more wins himself because obviously that's the spectacular era of Williams being quite quick car being a bit shabby engine being really powerful but blowing up a lot and I think you you can't really talk about Ralph Schumacher without talking about Montoya but I don't think it's as close as one place apart you know Ralph's just not on Montoya's level for me there's this fortnight in the middle of 2003 where he suddenly looks like a title contender and then after that he just kind of forgets to be from then onwards and just disappears for the re- for the rest of the season and it's just like you looked okay you weren't doing you weren't winning those back-to-back races in a very interesting Montoyery style but you were being very fast at that point and then it just it just goes again yeah he looked a real deal he looked a real deal for that week because uh, I think those races <laughs> yeah, back to were back to back as well weren't they uh, well, right. I think if you look, if if the thing is though, if you do look at the statistics in terms of 
their qualifying matchups, the race laps ahead, they're, they're coming out in very similar ways. I think both Montoya and Ralph Schumacher were limited in different ways. You could splice them collectively and make a brilliant driver, but they had strengths and weaknesses. And so they're similar for me, but I, I don't think we should underestimate what Ralph could do. Seriously quick driver, great in corner entry when he was confident with the car. I could see Ed was, was beavering away at his laptop there while we were talking. I thought, I bet he's looking up a stat to try and back up his argument. Anyway, let's move on to number six, which is Ayrton Senna. And there's a big split here on how we've all interpreted Senna's standing in a Williams ranking. Ed and I didn't put Senna in our top tens. Matt had him eighth. So the only reason he's made it into the overall top <laughs> ten at all is because Ben put him at number one. What? Now, this yeah. is obviously, this is wow. tricky. There's The Senna-William story is, of course, tragic, tragically short. And I'll admit, and I, I can't speak for Ed, but for me, I just felt that we didn't get a chance to see what Senna and Williams could have been. So he wasn't really in consideration for me. But Ben, how did you arrive at the conclusion that Ayrton Senna should be number one hmm. in a Williams driver's top 10 list? Because I think objectively he was the most talented Williams driver of the era, the best driver outright. So that's your log- that's, that's, that's basically your logic th- through the whole that's thing. That's at the centre of it. But then also I kind of pushed through that. Oh, well, he didn't, we didn't get to see enough of it because you can imagine what would have happened had he not been killed and how different 94, 95 beyond would have been. Ah, so I, the imaginary the, stats, the imaginary performances not, nothing, are No, counted. it's not to do with the stats. The, the last thing that sealed it for me is just what he did in that little snapshot, putting that awful car on pole position for the first three races when Hill was nowhere in it and Schumacher was in a Benetton that everyone considered was by far the best car on the grid. That was absolutely outstanding. And my first really clear memory of watching Formula One properly was seeing him perform those heroics in that car and for him to then be taken out of the of Formula One so cruelly and so quickly at that point as a child was uh it's kind of ingrained in me really so uh I I I wavered in the sense that I thought yeah well obviously he didn't do enough races in Williams to be considered you know for the kind of story arc if you like as Matt put it earlier but uh, in my story arc, he's massively important at that point. And then when you add in the fact that he just was capable of things in the car that the others on this list just weren't, in my opinion, for me, he's the best. He's the best. Even though he only did three races, he was the best. So, Matt, you you were the only other uh, one of us to, to include Senna at all. Obviously, he's, he's towards the bottom of your ranking. But what what was the thinking then for you that meant, Senna's got to be a part of this. I, I was initially in the same camp as you and Ed, thinking he's almost uh, not applicable because it was so. It's it, not even just it was only three races. It was only really one race, you know, being taken out at the start at Aida, and obviously the accident at Emily was very early in that race. And then I was like, actually, if I'm also putting a degree of how well did these people perform relative to what should have been possible in their Williams races into this, like Ben says, three pole positions in that car, incredible. Hanging on as close to Schumacher as he did for as long as he did at Interlagos in an inferior car was very, very centerish. It's everything you'd expect from Ayrton Senna, leading as he was at Imola when he died. It was all more than the car should have been doing. So for that reason, I was like, actually, I can't exclude him 
on pure performance. I think in those three races, he performed more impressively than some drivers who spent whole seasons at Williams did in their time at Williams. So he gets on that, but you can't put him... I see Ben's logic. I like. I, I admire Ben's ultimate talent of these drivers' logic. But I think under my criteria, where longevity did play a bit of a role in terms of significance in the story, I couldn't go much higher than, than the eighth place I put him. He, again, like... You can also, like Ben did, apply some of the when he wasn't there to the story arc as well. Williams chasing him for so long, all the the, the circumstances around Frank's pursuit of him that never came off until it was almost too late. What he would have achieved is still worth thinking about in terms of this kind of general overall Williams story because the stories are so important to what Williams was as an F1 team. There's so much about Williams that, that did not happen to other F1 teams. So, yeah, I felt he had to be in. It's not... You can look at it almost as a sort of tragically romantic story that when he finally got to Williams after all those years, it was so short. It's actually, it's not tragically romantic. It's just horrible. It's just really sad for Frank Williams and the team and obviously for Senna and, and his fans and family. But after working so for so long, right back to that test in 1983 to finally get there and then not only is it so short, but it's just as Williams gets things wrong after dominating for two years. It's... It's just, it's not even romantic. It's just like, oh, that's so sad. It's just wrong that it happened like that. Um, but in performance terms, there was a little snapshot in those in those three events of this would have been incredible. But also his impact on the team is was almost everlasting, wasn't it? It was only recently they took the Senna logo off the cars. Yeah. So even though he didn't do so much in the car, arguably there's no more Senna a driver for as long as Senna. His absence and his presence in cars that were worse than the Williams was kind of defining so many of Williams' successes through the period as well. You know, without without Senna there throwing Lotuses or okay, Lotuses pre this podcast era, but throwing McLarens at, at superior Williams, we wouldn't have a stronger Williams storyline. So yeah, it's he I, I couldn't leave him out. He's too too big a part of the story. I think uh, that Interlagos race, which we've covered, I think we covered it back in Series 2, uh, or the build-up to it from Senna's perspective. It is interesting now. I, I remember watching it at the time, and when Schumacher jumped him in the pits, I was thinking, this is a bit disappointing. What you know, Senna, Senna can't win in a Williams, because we obviously we weren't certain at that point how, how bad the car was. But I think most of the senior people at Williams from that time have looked back and said that Senna had no business being in the same postcode as Schumacher during that race and that they were miles ahead of everybody else. And, you know, the fact that he spun out was because he was having to drive over the limit to keep up with a superior car. Ed, I said I didn't want to speak for you earlier in explaining my logic for not including him, but did you have the same train of thought as me? Well, yeah, there was no question about the quality of his performance because he was sensational. But he was only there for three races. He should never have gone to Williams at all, given how it worked out, given it was so tragic. I think everyone would agree it would have been better if that alliance had never happened because it because of how it how it ended. And just it meant he, he couldn't make that actual direct impact. And that direct impact has to be part of it. He started three Grand Prix, the same as Mark Genet for Williams. Didn't score any points, didn't finish a Grand Prix. Now, that doesn't reflect his ability level. And probably, yeah, 
it's the statement that he was the the most talented of these drivers. Yeah, a few would uh, would strenuously uh, argue against that. Alan Prost, you could uh, make a case for, but I just think he just didn't do enough. I, I think he's quite the opposite. He's the the most tragic of the Williams drivers, and that eliminates him from greatness as a Williams driver, as far as I'm concerned, because there just wasn't enough time for him there, and it's always just a little bit sad when you think of him in that Williams because of how it all ended. So. Although I briefly gave it some thought, it, it, it he was just instantly disqualified, pretty much. Right, but he would, he, in those three races, he did more, he did greater things and had more impact than Frentzen did, and he made your list. Yeah, Frentzen had two seasons there. He won a Grand Prix, technically finished second in the championship. You know, not, nothing sensational, but he was there long enough to be an enduring story, and he's still a fascinating story to this day. Senna at Williams is just tragic, isn't it? It's just, it's awful, and everyone wishes it never happened. With that, let's move on to our top five then. And uh, in the combined points from all of our scores, so we were using the the current F1 points system because we need a top 10. It's not, you know, obviously we, we, we believe in 10 points for a win and I think only top six get points. That's the real V10 era point system, isn't it? Um, but in our combined scores, there was quite a big jump between the bottom half and the top half. So let's move into that top half because in fifth place, we have the man who moved aside at the end of 1993 to make way for Senna to join Williams, his arch nemesis, Alain Prost. Quite a big spread in our individual placings again here. Um, I had Prost fifth, um, Ed put him fourth, Ben had him second, and Matt put him ninth. Uh, <laughs> Matt, did you mean to type Nigel Mansell's name here and put Prost by accident? <laughs> Uh, I'm pr- no, I'm going to stand by this. Is that it? Is that the end of your justification? <laughs> he's, he sounds convinced by his own argument already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, again, it, him and Patrese are the ones I was like, oh, this is this is me being a little bit provocative, but whatever. I'm going to do it. Um, it's just not a very William story, is it? I think Prost in his younger days in his kind of Renault era at Williams would have been a really exciting fascinating thing I wish that had happened Prost at this point I don't want to denigrate the quality of his performances in 93 he still won the world championship but he did what he needed to do to bank that championship I thought that how quickly Damon Hill was giving him hassle mid-season was like oh, come on you can do you, Prost you're you are one of the two greatest of your era and this guy has only just made it to F1 and now he's on your tail already what is that about um he got the championship done in a superior car. I'm glad he has four world championships. It was not a very Williamsy way to win a championship. Yeah, I just it nothing about it excites me. And for that reason, because Williams was a team I always found exciting and believed in, even if I was being angry at its drivers, for instance, someone we might mention a bit later, it was part of a part of a storyline for me, and it never left me as cold as it did during the Prost Winter Championship. You know, season in '93, I feel like the most Williams-y, William, the the biggest contribution to the Williams legend in '93 is probably Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> oh, nice! In terms of putting something iconic into the into the Williams storyline, it just yeah, it just doesn't move me. Ben, second place, then. Yeah, well, I think given I put Senna so high in my own ranking, you can kind of understand why Prost is so close to him in that ranking. So there's a big a big part of it is just how close they were on ability but also I quite like the efficiency of going in one season bang so many poles wins championship kind of cruising it 
because he was so good and the car was so good. And also having little toy matchbox 93 Williams with Frost <laughs> and the two on it. I've got this. It's like an enduring childhood memory of mine. I raced so many times with those cars on the floor of my parents' house. Uh, and I just, I loved that. I loved that car and its livery and everything. So yeah, I get it's not, you know, the most wonderful uh, story and didn't go on for as long as some of the other drivers we've talked about. But, you know, Prost was an amazing driver, banked his final title with Williams. It's a, it's Hill's breakout season as a rookie. Uh, so just lots of childhood vibes for me that just elevates Prost up. So Ben Anderson, who earlier when when someone else, I think it was it, we were talking about vibes for someone early on and Ben was pretending to dab his eyes with a tissue. And now he's got all <laughs> misty eyed about his own childhood. And that's put Alan Prost second in, in the, in the ranking. Uh, Ed, uh, you, you and I uh, were quite closely aligned on this. Where do you stand on the Prost cruising to the championship thing does does that damage his his williamsiness in any way for you should he have should he have mansled his way to the championship and just bullied the car around the track <laughs> I like the arms the arms going <laughs> that's how nigel mansell drove an f1 car Big wide cockpit waving him around. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great visual for it's a quite podcast donkey Kong, but, yeah. that, isn't it <laughs> not, that, not that the listeners can see it they can picture it well now though <laughs> pros funny because he's he's profoundly unWilliamsy because he's so McLaren-y. But at the same time, his experience was so Williamsy, wasn't it? Because they signed him. And then not long after he'd signed, he started to get the impression they quite liked Senna. And his one stipulation was, I don't need number one status. I just will not be teammates with Ed. And that was his one thing. And then instantly, he started to get the impression that they were chasing Senna as well. So he knew that was coming from quite a long way off. Weirdly, it was Renault and Elf who were less behind him. That's always baffled me. Yeah, they were the ones that really pushed for Senna. He got on brilliantly with Head and Frank Williams and the race team. So he was quite Williamsy from that perspective. And yeah, he hated the active ride car. He didn't like the feel of it. He didn't really enjoy it. He said it was a trickier car to drive than people think. He did turn in some decent performances. A similar win is one that probably stands out. Well, that's a great one to pick. He he resents the fact that that race isn't talked about more because I think he had he had a car problem late on as well. Yeah, was there a was there a stuck throttle around. or something he was having to yeah. deal with? Yeah, and and I I think he wasn't. He didn't grab the car by the scruff of the neck and absolutely monster it to the championship. He didn't get the absolute most out of it. But I quite, I do quite like the efficiency of him dropping in, winning the championship, right off I go, you can have Senna. He kind of proved his point. But I just like the way he fitted in so well with Williams because you would actually expect the Williams-Prost story to be very different. You'd expect him not to like the way the race team went about things. So it's all backwards and weird. And it's just this bizarre season from that perspective. Plus, he had what I like to call the stupidest penalty ever in F1 when he got that penalty for cutting the track at Hockenheim when he was uh, avoiding a spinning brundle, wasn't he? Which I always thought was was grossly unfair. He doesn't like his Monaco jump start penalty from that year, but he jumped the start. So I don't know why he's quite so unhappy <laughs> Yeah, I think his annoyance one. there is at the accuracy of the policing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But basically, he was able to phone it in and still quite comfortably win the championship. <laughs> Although Hill had some moments where he bothered him. I think it's easy to overstate how much of a threat Hill was to, to Prost. Prost could turn it on when he wanted to. A nice win at Kyle Army as well, which was quite measured, picking off Senna and Schumacher. So yeah, I, I, I like what Prost did there. He's a bit of an outlier, but 
he won a world championship for them, one of four drivers in this era to do so. So that puts him automatically pretty high up uh, in my estimation. And I just like the way he said, right, you want Senna? Fine, I'm off. I've won you a championship. Bye. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if you win a championship for Williams, you've got to be you've got to be in the top half somewhere. Let's move on to fourth place then, outscoring Prost by just three points. So I think we have to say that's thanks to Matt, really. Uh, we have Juan Pablo Montoya. Montoya won four races for Williams, briefly fought for the world title in 2003. Matt had him up in third, which isn't a huge surprise to any regular listeners. <laughs> uh, I had him fourth. Ben put him fifth and Ed had him down in sixth, of course, behind Ralph Schumacher, as we mentioned earlier. Matt, uh, the, the floor is yours for the moment. Tell us why Juan Pablo Montoya ranks so highly as a Williams driver. Listeners, if you've ever watched these seasons in which Montoya raced, do I need to say anything? Is your brain not full of iconic moments of bold passes on Schumacher, some of which he knew were clearly not going to work, but he did it anyway. Belligerent defending that was just on the right side of completely out of order, but he was doing it with such spirit it didn't matter. Tire-wrecking drives from pole positions, squandering chances, but doing it with such Williams spirit that you could see Frank Williams and Patrick Hegg simultaneously forgiving and hating him for what he was doing. He was just as Williams-y a driver as you could get. All that all that excitement about his arrival, the fact he took, you know, 2001 was a, a mix of being a complete mess or utterly brilliant and basically nothing in between. If you're looking for a storyline, if you're looking for someone to excite you at a time when F1 is largely, apart from 2003, just rubbish and boring and predictable and a waste of your Sunday afternoon, this is the man changing that. And then he flounces off halfway through a season and signing a deal for a team he's never going to fit in at. Um, because Williams has managed to annoy him and he's overreacted to it, which is also a very Williams storyline thing to happen. So in terms of being an impressive performer and being an absolute Williams type and making me kind of get interested in F1 again after a period when I'd sort of lost my spirit for it completely, he's he couldn't be any lower down my list. He could easily have been first, but I did hold myself back a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I I uh, I would go with that, Matt. He was uh, he made Williams exciting again and Formula One exciting again. That's why he deserves a lot of credit. He's maybe maybe he was the fastest driver of a single lap of the guys on this list. If you try to sort of not Senna, obviously, but he's not on your guys' list. He was like he was so impressive taking a fight to Schumacher when somebody really needed to. He kind of filled that post post Hakkinen kind of void. So I. I was such a fan of the the verve that he brought to Formula One in a period that was just so red and Schumacher dominated. Yeah, same. I, uh, like Matt and and Ed, I think, I'm not sure about you, Ben, I was a massive IndyCar and kart fan. And it took me a little while to warm to Montoya when he went to America, mainly because in 99, his rookie season, uh, he was, you know, he was rubbing a few people up the wrong way, which looking back on now, I love. But at the time, he was in a championship fight with Dario Franchitti, and I was I was a Dario fan, so I wanted Dario to to win that championship. And they they tied on points in the end, didn't they? But then Montoya was the first kart driver to win the Indy Five Hundred as an invader after the 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 Indy the IRL kart split of the mid nineties. Chip Ganassi took cars back there in 2000 and Montoya walked it and I I 
am in love with the Indy 500. I loved it from the, the first time I, I watched a the race there in the early 90s. I hated the split and seeing a kart team go back there and see Montoya absolutely wipe the floor of everybody was phenomenal. Then I got super excited about him coming back to F1, oh, coming to F1, coming back to Europe. Um, he put manners on Michael Schumacher, as Matt mentioned in, what was it, his third race in Brazil, that brilliant overtake. From then on, I just thought he was spectacular. He was explosive, which leads me to the question I want to ask Ed, which is if your scale you're using is this this ill-defined Williamsiness. How is Juan Pablo Montoya only sixth? Because I, th- the man exudes Williamsiness, surely. <laughs> well, it's an interesting one because I actually think while he does tick some of the Williamsy boxes, I don't think he ticks all of them. And in some ways, Ralph Schumacher was more Williamsy in the way that he dealt with the team uh, and the, uh, the the attitude he carried. So Montoya's a weird one because I really like Montoya and I always like Montoya far more than Ralph Schumacher just purely from a watching sort of fan perspective. But for me, with him, it all comes down to the what they did. Ben said oh, that he was sort of quicker than anyone, but I, I just don't think Montoya had the level of corner entry because it's a modern F1 and I consider this period to still be modern F1 it's really all about the corner entry that's absolutely critical and Ralph Schumacher when he was on the money and right could do that better than Montoya Montoya did a lot of other good things he had great feel he could monster a car he could sort of mansell it a little bit you could say but I, I just I feel that Montoya could have done so much more he only won what four Grand Prix for Williams that's not a great return for what he did yeah 03 championship Without the tie, I think could have been a little bit different, but I, I just that's think got, that's got to raise him up, though, hasn't it? He did nearly win the championship in the, the Schumacher period, and all the poles as well. He was he was fast, fast, yeah, exciting, fast, nearly but, champion, but, much better than Ralph. But, but Ralph could be. But Ralph, look at their qualifying record together. It's it's much of a muchness in terms of going one way or the other. Ralph was very very quick. I think Montoya was sort of a little bit more consistent and he generally get a tune out of anything to a certain level. But Ralph Schumacher was really quick. And that that's what I think these two do undermine each other a little bit because, like I said earlier, they're strong in areas where the other is weak. And I just think that Montoya fundamentally didn't quite take to F1 as well as I expected him to in, in many ways. Like I say, just, just the four wins. Same as Patrese. Very similar Yeah, but McLaren were never going to sign Ralph, were they? But they were. They were well, what's to that got to do with it? This isn't top ten drivers who <laughs> McLaren would have signed. It's because just that Montoy was more exciting to everyone in Formula One, not just me and Matt. Oh, so, yeah, he was certainly exciting. I'd one hundred percent agree with that. And I, that, I had Ralph and Montoy next to each other in my list. It's just I thought that if you try and look at it a little bit more uh, critically in terms of the the performance level, I think Ralph just just edged it overall. And I think he was very Williamsy as well. But it's interesting how well bound together those two are, isn't it? I, I think if you said to me, what would I enjoy? more probably it would be Montoya in a Williams but I just think he flatters the sieve just a little bit too much I think we didn't quite see as much from Montoya as we should have done I think but actually expecting him to deliver something was never the Montoya's Montoya strength <laughs> it was the spirit along the way that you could get behind like I I was a ridiculously passionate Montoya fan before he got into F1 based on seeing him in Formula 3000 qualifying sessions at Silverstone for a couple of years we couldn't it was supporting FIA GT we couldn't afford tickets on the Sunday so we went on Saturday and watched qualifying and I was like who is this guy whose car body language in a Formula 3000 qualifying session is this needlessly aggressive both in how he's driving the car and how he's backing up other people to spoil their laps it's like 
this is ludicrous. I love it. It's it's obviously not it's wasting energy, but it's it's great. And he just carried that right through. I, I got disappointed with him during 2004 when he seemed to get a little bit invisible. And then he just signs off his Williams career by winning the final race in that rubbish car with an outside the out round the outside passing move on Kimi Raikkonen. And it's like, oh, there you are. That was what that was what I was I was here for. Thanks for that good sign off. Let's move on to our Williams driver's podium then. And in third place, it is Jacques Villeneuve. Now, contrary to popular belief, I'll take that. (laughs) Um, And contrary to Stuart Coulter's prediction that we mentioned earlier, I had Villeneuve third in my list, as did Ben and Ed. Uh, Matt had him down in fifth, so Matt is banished from the rest of the episode. I can't have done that. I had Patrese fifth, didn't I? Oh, yeah, you've got him fourth, so you're back in. (laughs) Uh, Well done, Matt. (laughs) Recount. The points are right. The points are right. The script is wrong. We're all good. Let's carry on. Uh, Ed, you can go first, as you agreed with me. Um, Third place for Villeneuve in your top ten. So, uh, you know, why... Why, why does he sit? Why does he get the, the, the lowest step on the podium? Yeah, well, I think, A, he's a very Williamsy driver. Head described him as someone you're either with or you're against, which is quite Williams in human form, I think. <laughs> so he was an, ex, he was an extreme character, uh, could be a tricky character, but he did do a lot of very good things. That 96 season was really impressive, won the championship, had those, uh, had a decent long stint there over those, over those three years. So, I like a lot of what Villeneuve did. And I also think the way that he won the 97 title, which was a little bit stumbly, is also very Williams. Certainly in the the, the main part of the, the Bring Back V10s era, where they just love doing that. I will say, I like the fact that Williams, when we get this, it's that famous Patrick headline, isn't it? Made hard work of it. I, I like the idea that it's portrayed that it was only Villeneuve making hard work of it and that Williams <laughs> themselves were flawless in execution and car development post Newey. I, uh, a couple of years ago now, I got to interview Patrick Head for a low, basically, I got one slot with him and the agreement was come up with as many different episodes as you think we might do in the future, get a question so you've got a Patrick Head soundbite. And I I can't remember if it was in the recording or afters, but I did ask a question about, oh, obviously, you know, car development was a bit difficult maybe after Adrian left. And Patrick went, no, well, we didn't really develop the cars back then. You just sort of ran what you had at the start of the season. I thought, that is absolutely not true. That That is, that is a brilliant bit of revisionism. To just be like, nope, the car was brilliant. It was on pole by two seconds in Australia. It should have been the case for the whole season. It's all Jack's fault. So, yeah, I, I, I've never quite bought... I'm not saying he was flawless this season, but neither were Williams. And as you say, Ed, that's actually quite a Williamsy combination. Yeah, w- Williams in human form. It's just what I think Villeneuve is. So he was fun, and he did have some of that excitement when he came in from, from Kart as well. So he did he did some of the Montoya stuff, but he did it better, I would say. Ooh. So he's, he's kind of a better, a better Montoya. I don't think Villeneuve was flawless by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, I, I just... I think what he did was was uh, was was very good. You can't argue with a world championship plus the way it was won with a Schumacher collision as well. Yeah, I've, I've got to take issue with the noise Matt just made there about <laughs> doing Montoya things but doing them better. He 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 won a championship up against Michael Schumacher. That that is that is doing the Montoya stuff better. Montoya got to <laughs> sort of barge into Schumacher from time to time, and I loved it. But he didn't win a he championship. Did, he so didn't what's have with the a noise? better car than Schumacher. 
which Villeneuve did. That's well, the key thing. For me, I can't put Villeneuve higher than fourth because I couldn't in good conscience put Montoya higher than third because execution's so poor. And to me, Villeneuve is Montoya light. <laughs> He's a Montoya in spirit. You're back on the banished list. And some of his achievements, but he just doesn't deliver consistently enough. Like, Villeneuve's peaks are genuinely amazing. Like, I've... I, it, uh, the last episode I was on was Estoril 96 and I was gushing over Villeneuve f- in that one. He was incredible that day. His debut was superb. Some of his 97 drives were absolutely brilliant. Jerez, for one, obviously. Um, I think Spain's underrated with the tyre nursing there. In 98, I thought he was fantastic in a less competitive Williams. Just that theory of got a poor engine, whipple the, downf- whip the downforce off so I've got no drag. I'll just hurl it around. It'll work out. And it often did. I, I think he's great. I love Villeneuve. I genuinely do. But oh my gosh. A lot of 97, he was just poor. Okay, Glenn, uh, there was some poor Williams execution, but there were some races where it's like, do you need to be only fourth at Manucor and all over the place? Do you need to be shunting at Hockenheim racing at Prost? It's like, yeah, I'm not looking forward to those two races yeah, when we do our sort of run through. There's some yeah. real low points where you just need to put, just get on with it and do what you and this car should be capable of. And you don't even need to be winning at this point. Just get some podiums. And that's the that's the frustration. As much as I was a massive Villeneuve fan at that time, there were two. There just wasn't enough consistent delivery. He was he was a fair way off the pace for a lot of '96. I loved the idea of what he was doing, but I was how I was putting a lot. I was making a lot of excuses for him during '96, given how much testing he actually had. He was he was not as fast as Hill for much of that year, even though his racecraft was better and his peaks were so so cool. And that's why I I've put him ahead of a lot of people who've won championships. Uh, other people who've won championships but i just can't i can't go higher than fourth it just didn't do it often enough for me ben coming back us up you had him in third like ed and i did let's uh, let's finish on a high yeah i i grudgingly have to respect Villeneuve in this period <laughs> obviously it's a david hill fan i was looking for uh, <laughs> but i mean i i had him this high basically because he he got it over the line in 97 he did beat schumacher in a title fight which was a very difficult thing to do i think he was uh, he was kind of Montoya in more concentrated form, not necessarily light form. You know, he he it just happened over a shorter period. He made a massive splash in '96, was incredibly impressive. But it was obviously was a bit of a no contest season. '97 was much more difficult and much more open, and Ferrari were much more competitive, and so was Schumacher and Villeneuve. Okay, he didn't he didn't he he maybe made heavy weather of it, but he did get the job done, and that. That for me is enough in, you know, what I consider to be the best season of this era to to get him over the line. I think he then went downhill very fast after that. I agree, 98 was very good. But after that, I kind of feel have peaked. Um, but his his early peak was incredibly impressive and very successful as well. Yeah, that'll do. Uh, two drivers <laughs> still to go then. And I think it's pretty obvious who's still left in the mix. So... With apologies to Alex Zanardi and Nick Heidfeld, who were the only <laughs> full-time Williams drivers not to get a single vote. Uh, in second place, we have Damon Hill. Hill raced for Williams, of course, from 1993 to 96, famously getting dropped in the year he won the title. He won 21 races for Williams during that time. Now it gets interesting. Ed and Matt, uh, both had Damon second in their lists, so they were bang on. I had him first, which I'll explain in a bit. And brace yourselves, everybody. The Damon Hill superfan on this podcast, Ben Anderson, only put Damon Hill sixth 
in his list. And I should add, Hill has missed out on the top spot by 11 points. So even if Ben had only put him second, that would have been enough for Damon to win this ranking overall, as it would have gained Damon 10 points and taken a couple away from our mystery number one, March which I'm still <laughs> pretending nobody has worked out the identity of. Ben, what on earth has gone on here? Okay, so statistically, it's no contest. He's the greatest Williams driver of the era. But statistics are not the only thing that counts. And although he had a long stint at Williams, and obviously I was a massive fan of Damon growing up, and with apologies to you now, Damon, I just don't think in terms of pure ability, he belongs in number one, two, three, four, or five <laughs> on this list. You know, he was a... he was accidentally thrust into the limelight by the circumstances around Williams and Senna particularly passing away and was almost kind of a reluctant Williams number one. And it, that was at both both ends. You know, he was he was trying to live up to that and deal with that pressure. At the same time, Williams weren't really fully ever trusting that he was that type of driver. And I think on pure ability, that's fair. Uh, so he kind of achieved the stats almost are an overachievement in terms of Damon's pure ability versus other drivers that drove for Williams in this period. I think he was phenomenal in terms of delivering on that and and making the most of his opportunity. But I just think objectively, when you compare the the ability of the other Williams drivers in this period, he's not he's just not on the podium. I have to say, I I massively admire uh, you not being predictable. You know, I, I I just I wore putting Vilna third as some sort of badge of honor. You've put your guy down in sixth, but some of the stuff you mentioned there, I've looked at it from the other direction, and is part of the reason why he's number one for me. It's his importance to Williams during this time, where I just felt Damon had to carry that team on his shoulders, as you say reluctantly it wasn't what he was there for he was never signed to be the guy who would go and fight for world championships in the mid 90s he had to he was he was thrust into that and obviously it messed with his head we could see that from afar you you know that if you read his excellent book watching the wheels um people always ask for book recommendations i always recommend damon hill's book incredible everything he did and what he had to go through and the way he rebuilt himself for 96 and the People who are at Williams say he came back a completely different driver, a completely different person in 96. He's so important to the Williams story. He he held the team together at a time when it could have crumbled in the wake of, of the tragedy of Imola 94. So all of that for me, plus all the wins and and as you say, Ben, on, on pure talent, a Damon Hill and Michael Schumacher equals who should be crashing into each other, fighting over world championships? Probably not. But but Damon just had to drag himself to a, a level of performance. And I, I'm really happy for him that he, he got a world championship. Um, he obviously shouldn't have been kicked out of the team when he was. But it's, it's his importance. In Williams's moment of need, it was Damon Hill that... He stepped up because he had to step up. It wasn't like he volunteered for it. He had no choice. But the way he handled it was was superb. So that's why he was my number one. Ed and Matt, you, you mean you've both got him number two. So I'm not I'm not expecting a huge amount of disagreement here. So Matt, should we just sort of point fingers at Ben and, and laugh at him for <laughs> you know, for doing his his favourite driver the dirty? 
no fair play to ben his criteria if you're doing it if you're doing it on the pure talent ranking hill is not top five of the williams drivers in that period but like you say glenn i absolutely agree with everything that you've said there he should not have even been in that team in the first place really looking at his career up to that point he ends up being signed to a race seat almost by accident and then look what he has to then take on and look what he goes on to achieve it's just I've, I've I've talked about storyline a lot in how important it is to how I rank a Williams driver for their contribution to Williams. Damon Hill's Williams story is absolutely incredible, made even more so by the way he was kicked out. I don't think it would have been that wrong if he'd never won a title, just because I don't... It, it was a reward for having being, being robbed in the circumstances of 94 to some degree because Schumacher was so out of order in the finale, but Schumacher deserved that year's title. 96 I take with a little pinch of salt because okay he reinvented himself over the winter fantastic but also he's an intelligent guy he saw everything else that was changing that winter he would have seen the guy who was clearly better than him moving to a team that was in much worse shape than Williams and then he would have seen that guy being replaced by a lunatic with John Lacey joining Benetton it would not have been hard for Damon to look at that year's entry list and go I think this might be a bit less stressful. Yeah, this 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 is probably going to be I've okay. I've got a chance. This new guy's turn up next to me seems a little bit odd. I think I might be all right. But yeah, he, the guy who probably, who, who looked for a long time like he'd never even make it to F1, then was struggling to qualify a terrible Brabham that he sort of ended up in by accident as well. Suddenly he's leading Williams against Michael Schumacher after Senna's death and then two years later he's a world champion. What what a story. What an achievement. That took real character. And as much as Damon's book reveals he was struggling at that time, what enormous strength he showed throughout that whole period and afterwards. Yeah, I think that story element's important. And I think you shouldn't underestimate what it took to actually get himself into that seat. Because Williams could have gone elsewhere. It wasn't They weren't throwing test drivers in left, right and centre into race seats. They had some good test drivers before Hill who ultimately decided against. They decided to take Hill over Brundle. And Brundle had been a test driver for them, high quality driver. But they thought, actually, do you know what? Hill's the guy to take. So, yeah, he, he was such a key part of Williams in this period. And it's so easy to underestimate what it takes to win a championship, even in those circumstances. Look at how Frentzen fared. He's been mocked in this uh, podcast for what he achieved in a car that could have won the title. And he was a very, very good Grand Prix driver. So what Hill did, I think, and that trajectory and the recovering from the difficulties of 95 is worthy of a lot of respect. I think you could make a reasonable case for him being number one, given the the span of this and, and, and the criteria. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't quite go that far. But yeah, Hill did a hell of a lot. And I think there were so many occasions for the Hill at Williams story either not to happen at all or for it to end far, far, far quicker. And he kept managing to do enough to make it carry on until he, until he got the ultimate reward and, uh, and had already been dropped, which was... Uh, Quite, quite comedy. That's a that's very Williamsy, isn't it? The ultimate reward for winning a championship at Williams is to lose your drive, isn't it? Yeah, off, <laughs> off you go, and we'll replace you with this guy who'll be who'll be ultimately underwhelming for us, and then beat you at Jordan. It's very refreshing to uh, to be on one of these podcasts and have everyone else talking up Damon Hill and me <laughs> talking him down. This is very unusual. I'm enjoying it very much. Yeah, it feels good. Feels good, doesn't it? Uh, let's move on to our number one then. Um, and I will stop dragging out the tension. Uh, so let's now reveal, of course, number one is Nigel Mansell. Now, if that doesn't come as a surprise to you, just you wait, because there is still a shock coming. Ben had Mansell only fourth in his list. Uh, I had him second. Ed had him top. And Matt, 
would you care to tell the listeners where Mansell was in your list? I think it's only <laughs> fair that you reveal this yourself. <laughs> he was first. Wow. <laughs> Can you repeat that, please? Nigel Mansell is first in my list of top 10 Williams drivers of the V10 era. Okay, you're going to have to... Right, come on then. Let, let's hear it. Nobody saw <laughs> this coming. Laughing. I didn't see it coming. Uh, that tweet we read out earlier didn't see it coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hear it. Now, I... I, I I might have mentioned a few times in nine series or whatever we've done that I don't really like Nigel Mansell. It's um, okay to come across. Yeah. My as a fan, my dislike of him was utterly vehement and I I I'd stand by that. But I'm not ranking this as a fan. I'm ranking it as his contribution to the Williams story and what he achieved in its cars. And I can't I can't argue him down on basis of personal dislike, especially because my personal dislike is so based in being a teenager and teenage opinions don't always hold water. I could probably come to Nigel Mansell now if I was like 20 years older in the 90s and be a lot more level-headed rather than going, oh, all the people who like this guy are people who take their shirts off a wave union jacks. That's not what I want to be. Therefore, I must hate him too. I must hate him in response. Uh, he's tangled up in so many things in my head of, of uh, what I, where I fitted into the world as a teenager um, that it's not fair to uh, it's it's fine to occasionally point out how bad he was in the Hereth race in '94 and things like that in episode to bring back V10s, but it's not fair to pull him down a, to, a, a top ten ranking just because I was a little bit ill at ease with some of the things he represented because uh, of my own inadequacies as a teenager. That said, um, he wasn't at Williams for hugely long in this period, so I did think, oh, does he come down on longevity? But he was devastating in 92. Okay, he had the best car, but a lot of people have the best car and don't have that big a qualifying margin over the competition. Frentzen. <laughs> I respect how much he reveled in having the best car. There was, he was, you know, we talk about Prost phoning it in 93. Mounts was all, yeah, I'm going to dominate with my Donkey Kong arms and my, uh, my aggressive driving style. This car will go really fast. I will drive it really, 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 really fast. I admire yeah, There was that. no winning at seven tenths with Nigel, was there? no. No, I mean, okay, maybe he was like trying to, you know, some of that created needless melodrama. He never gave the car proper credit for being streets ahead of everything else. I resent that still. Also, 94. Um, okay, Hereti was rubbish. His qualifying was great in those few races, given he'd been out of F1 in cart for that period. Very impressed to come straight back in like that. I love that Hill largely outraced him. I love that it was Hill who got it done at Suzuka in that fashion. But... Even in 94, even with my kind of discomfort with everything Mansell represented when I was 14, I was actually really glad to see him back in F1 at that point. It felt like what F1, he was the storyline F1 needed at that point. In hindsight, the degree to which Bernie Eccleston and others were pushing Mansell back in as the thing that would save F1 after Senna's death feels a little bit distasteful and disrespectful to what other people were doing, Hill especially. But he was a kind of positive storyline that F1 did need and he created interest and I think if I'd been a professional journalist at that point I'd have been so glad for Mansell's return to make uh, to kind of change the tone of my working life at that point so for his contribution to the Williams story and his achievements in its most iconic car you have to put him first so I did not even grudgingly because I'm not doing it on whether I like the guy or not I'm doing it on how good he was this has been an incredible episode for kind of us all showing maturity and personal growth, <laughs> which I, I wasn't expecting. So I, to come back to those predictions from earlier, I didn't put Villeneuve number one. Ben definitely didn't put Damon Hill number one. And Matt not only included Nigel Manson in his top 10, <laughs> but put him at the top. It, 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 you mentioned longevity there. That, that That's actually kind of what worked against him 
for me. It just, there just had to be a bit more, I think you had to spend a bit more time in Williams's, and I might have been able to put him ahead of Hill. But I want to come to Ben next because Matsu wasn't on your Williams driver's podium. No, he wasn't. I mean, I had Senna and Prost on kind of a pedestal, I guess. I mean, he's obviously of their era. <laughs> and and they, Yes. Uh, Villeneuve... I had ahead of Mansell just because he had more competition in his title winning season. Like Mansell's Williams peak, he just didn't beat anyone. You know, he destroyed Patracy. That dropped Patracy off my list completely. Mansell got above Damon because of what Matt mentioned about 94, actually. You know, there were not to go back to Damon for too long, but there were a few too many guys in his period at Williams who gave him too much of a hard time when they really shouldn't have done and I think Mansell dropping in for cameos in 94 and out qualifying Damon that shouldn't really have been happening so that that elevated Mansell above Hill in my who's the best statistically best Williams driver of this period but then Mansell although he was respected by Senna he wasn't on Senna and Prost level so that immediately stopped him from being in the top two and then when it came to a choice between him and Villeneuve in terms of guys that got it done as opposed to Montoya who didn't uh I I just felt like Villeneuve got again extra credit because he he had to take take down Schumacher in a in a proper title fight whereas Mansell just you know Donkey Konged his way to the championship with ease I love that we've uh, <laughs> we've, we've coined this Donkey Konged driving style uh Ed so it's you and Matt who had Mansell at number one never thought I'd say that sentence was it ever in doubt for you though ed not really i briefly considered hill but mansell was just so effective 15 wins and 17 poles in the bring back v10s era of course 36 races he had a longer williams time but a lot of that was outside of what we're talking about but overall he is the quintessential williams driver he's all drama and excitement and lunacy and arms out elbows out all over the place he could give as good as he got with patrick head and frank williams so he just absolutely embodies williams for me which is what puts him so high up and he was a mightily good driver as well so quick the way he made the most of that active FW14B with that that confidence and the the aggression was just absolutely brilliant. There's just supreme certainty in his own ability to get the most out of the car. That's what Patrese ultimately couldn't do because it didn't give him the feedback he needed. So yeah, Mansell was was quite sensational, I think, and just always a drama and yeah the the 94 return and the willy won't he for 95 and of course then going to mclaren which was a uh, good comedy value just he was absolutely box office gold but with it he backed it up with supreme performances on track and i don't think there's any other driver in contention here who can tick all those boxes and just so so williamsy it, i think it's a massive shame that he didn't get the 95 seat that he he was he was hanging on for i think we've talked in previous episodes about the fact that he signed his 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 94 deal for those cameo appearances included an option for 95 and for him the only reason he really agreed to do the races in 94 was that he wanted it to be a stepping stone to the 95 seat and let's finish with a little show of hands shall we obviously adrian newey who knows quite a lot about Formula One and its cars <laughs> and its technology. I think we can all agree. Fair. Thinks that Mansell would have won the championship in 95 in the Williams FW17. Uh, we'll do a show of hands and then I'll get you to vocalise that 
for the audience. Who thinks Newey is right and that Mansell would have won that championship in 95? Not a single hand. Oh, Ed's thought about it and changed my his ha- mind. My hand was initially out. My hand was initially out of frame. A grudging finger appears from the bottom. No, well, it's, it's, it's coming from there. No, <laughs> well, I think I think he probably would have done a bit better than Hill, and you don't need to do too much better than Hill to have won that championship. So while I wouldn't really, bet, but Schumacher dominated bet, that season, really, didn't he? Yeah, well, and there was a lot of Williams underachievement. So I think if Mansell was there... Yeah, I think the Williams is a very good car. That, yeah, that's the thing. It would have come down to... I think Mansell's performance level overall would have been better than Hill. I think he'd have made fewer contributions to the Williams underachievement. So it would have been kind of Mansell versus whether Williams could get it together. So whether it would be a... It wouldn't be a Williams 92 season, but it could have been a Williams 91 style season, but just a little bit better that could have allowed Mansell to win it. So... Yeah, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd certainly say it's very possible. <laughs> just, just fate, just scrunched up faces and grumbling from the other no, two. Not having it. Just, no, no. It and and that isn't that is not that is not an anti-Mansell sentiment from me. Although, well, I I also don't think it'd have been that impressive over a full season, relatively. But it's more because how good Schumacher and Benetton were that year. Okay, the final gap is. 33 points in Schumacher's favour, but that is skewed by Adelaide and all the madness there with Schumacher being taken out by Lacey and Hill getting the easiest win in the universe. So really, it's it's more than that in kind of proper terms. Schumacher and Benetton were so good together in 95 with not the fastest car, but the strategies were so good. Schumacher's execution was so, so good. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, Mansell would have outscored Hill that season, but I think I could see Mansell coming off second best in mind games with Schumacher. Schumacher's going to do things Mansell's really not expecting. I'd love to have seen a Mansell-Schumacher season. It would have been fascinating, yeah. I just don't also think Mansell would have would have had the same commitment. Like someone like a Prost who you plug in after a break gets in and just is, I think, more methodical about it and chases after it. Whereas Mansell, I think he would just... There's something, there's something in the lack of pressure of the cameo appearances in the year before that just let him do it because it's like, well, yeah, okay, I've been asked to do it, I've been paid to do it, why not? But then when it's like, right, now I've got to just muster myself for a full title fight, you no know, full attack. Well, as Matt mentioned... But it's what he wanted. Yeah, it's what that's he wanted. Why, that's why he came back. That's why, you know, he gave up on the IndyCar But thing. with when you add in the rise of Benetton and Schumacher, they were better in 95 than they were in 94. I just think... I can see Mansell starting the season quite well in a similar way to Hill and then just becoming demoralised at how good Schumacher and Benetton are and then just eating himself, basically, and then ending up in Completely. a similar position to, to Damon. Yeah. Benetton and Schumacher were strong, but I don't think there can be any question mark about the Mansell level of commitment. He'd have been all in on on winning that championship. I agree it could have unravelled if it, if it started to go wrong, but I think he'd have had every chance. And I, I just think, fundamentally, it's, yeah, I think he would have been probably more compelling than Hill in 95. I, I think Ben's point about the, the high chance of Mansell getting demoralised, not giving up, but just kind of going a bit wild with it, you know, it was quite high given that he would have come back, he would have come back with the expectation he'd have the best car and he would win that championship. That would have been in his head when he was trying to commit to that deal. And then yeah, being up against... I think he did have the best, he would have had the best car. Well, yeah, but not perhaps to the same ex- with as much of a margin as he would have anticipated. No, not a huge advantage. Um, and it would have let him down, and the team would have let him down as they did 
their existing drivers. Yeah, this this is it. Like those failures at the start of the season start racking up. Those those poor strategies start racking up. Where does Mansell go there? Does he try to overcompensate? Does it get really fractious in the team? And all the time you've got this relatively serene Schumacher, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne triangle going on, just pulling off another strategy you didn't see coming, doing some slicks on the wet in the wet genius. And it's like this this is a load of curveballs for Mansell to deal with. Obviously I'm a Mansell skeptic. I think he'd have dealt with them badly. Maybe I'm maybe I'm absolutely wrong. But uh, that, uh, to me, that's Schumacher's greatest season. And I think anyone would have found it hard to beat him and hard to keep their head together up against that. There's also, uh, Schumacher said this at the time during 95. You, you mentioned, Matt, sort of reasons that the gap could have been bigger uh, between Schumacher and Hill. Schumacher was, was furious uh, after the second collision they had uh, at Monza. His main irritation uh, was that uh, the two collisions had obviously meant that that was two race weekends where he lost a chance to be even further ahead of, of Damon. And he said that after Monza. He, he said, like, it's another weekend where we scored the same number of points, so zero, when I, I should have outscored him. And, you know, it, it, I think he pretty much accused Damon of crashing into him to stop him pulling away in the championship. I don't think it was quite that measured from Damon. But we'll finish there. And let's recap then our top 10 Williams drivers of the V10 era. In 10th place, we had David Coulthard. 9th was Jensen Button. 8th, Ricardo Patrese. 7th was Ralph Schumacher. Ayrton Senna was 6th. Alain Prost was 5th. 4th was Juan Pablo Montoya. Jacques Villeneuve was 3rd. Damon Hill was 2nd. And top of the pile, we had Nigel Mansell. big moment of realization for matt beer <laughs> thanks then to ed and ben for joining us to work all of this out and a special thank you to matt for confessing his secret admiration for mansell no this episode no. has been worth it just to uncover that um grudging respect okay grudging respect. i'll go that far we have just one more episode to go then in series nine where we'll be taking your questions about the v10 era as usual, the questions we got to choose from are brilliant, so we can't wait to get stuck into them. The Athletic.